I think the goal here is to transcend this idea of success and failure and rather to see each and every experience as a learning opportunity um, to grow in ourselves. Um, and I think this can, can or there's an opportunity for us to apply this in our own uh, professional field, right? Because we have to ask ourselves, what is the goal? And then what is the means to achieve that goal? You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Uh, so this is a continuation from where Dr. Anna Baker and I left uh, in the first episode of our mini series. And for those of you who do not know Dr. Anna Baker and who have not listened to the first episode from this mini series, I highly recommend that you do that. Dr. Anna Baker is professor of medicine and radiology at the Mayo Clinic. And he's also the program director for the cardiovascular disease fellowship at the Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Anna Baker and I discussed about um, self-contemplation and self-exploration and how that impacts outcomes in cardiovascular medicine. Um, and sort of taking from where we left, uh, we thought it would be ideal to discuss how we measure success um, in clinical cardiovascular medicine or in clinical medicine, um, as well as in academic medicine in 2023. Because uh, we've both had discussions about this and, you know, uh, we both feel that we are on the same path as far as measuring success is concerned in in clinical medicine as well as in academia. And um, we think it may be helpful to share our thoughts um, with the the wider audience at Parallax and certainly the wider audience in general. So with that introduction, Nandan, welcome again on the show. And thank you so much for doing this on a Saturday morning. I, I can't wait to get started. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure. It's always a, a joy to uh, reconnect with you. Um, I, I love these discussions. Yeah, no, thanks for imparting all the wisdom and, and all the knowledge that you've garnered through um, your own um, examination of self and, and um, you know, the journey inward. Um, so I'm going to start um, by asking you about how you think about success in 2023. And, uh, you know, uh, I think there are two sides of the same coin. How do you think about failure? in 2023? And are these even um, concepts uh, for you? And I think we did broach upon this um, in our previous discussion, but I'll stop here and I'll have you answer these questions for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that's a, that's a great um, start to the conversation. Um, and, and I think that when we talk about the concepts of success and failure, um, we're talking about outcomes. And if you take a step back, um, you know, you can really divide um, our field of experiences into polar opposites, you know, likes, dislikes, success, failure, good, bad, um, however you uh, want to see it. But, but they're sort of opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and what we do um, is we use that uh, extreme, and within that extreme, we 
we create a spectrum. Um, and that spectrum is what we use to, to measure. Um, and if, if we're honest about it, um, if we look back, if every one of us looks back on our lives, um, we are amazing at measuring, you know, um, even as toddlers, we measure other toddlers uh, based on what they have, right? Um, who's got the most toys in the sandbox, right? And as we grow older, this measurement schema just becomes more sophisticated. Um, we look, we measure people by what they wear, um, how they look, what their professional status is, um, you know, what um, you know, uh, they have in their possession. Um, and most of these are materialistic measures of, uh, somebody's success. Um, and this is really, um, the magnitude of, of what they possess. Now, in my sort of analysis, and this is again, my opinion, um, and I totally understand and, and respect, um, other viewpoints. Um, we are no different in our, uh, career as, as physicians. In fact, I think that we um, measure um, up to a pathologic level, um, especially in academia. Um, we have come to a point of um, our measurement of success is based on numerical values on, for example, how much we publish, what our academic rank is, where we are in the hierarchy within an institution. And even between institutions, the very fact that we have um, a, a competition of who is number one um, tells us that we are driven by these, these measurements of perceived success and failure. Now, you asked me where I stand um, in this paradigm. And I, as we talked about or touched about in the last um, sort of conversation, I think the goal here is to transcend this idea of success and failure, and rather to see each and every experience as a learning opportunity um, to grow in ourselves. Um, and I think this can, can, or there's an opportunity for us to apply this in our own uh, professional field, right? Because we have to ask ourselves, what is the goal? And then what is the means to achieve that goal? And primordially, our goal is to take care of individuals who have illness and by doing so to help progress the frontiers of our society. Now, I think over time we have sort of gone a little bit askew in terms of what our goal is and our goal has changed to seeing how we can evolve in our very own passions to achieve name and status rather than to align ourselves with the primordial goal, and that is to keep pushing the frontiers of our society by pushing the frontiers of society of what we are, uh, uh, sorry, the frontiers of science by understanding more of what's in front of us. Yes, and um, um, how do you think we've gotten here? And I mean, I, I think you are at a crucial position as a program director because I'm sure you see this a lot in cardiovascular disease fellowship applications. And, you know, when I was preparing myself to apply for cardiovascular disease fellowships, and I've, I've written a piece about this, which I, I think I may or may not have shared with you. It's, it's called Perseverance versus Pedigree. Um, uh, and it was published in the European Heart Journal. And this was after I uh, became an attending physician. 
I thought I should write about this. Um, I mean, um, measuring to a pathological level, I think uh, a great example of that is cardiovascular disease fellowship applications because, um, to my understanding, a lot of the applicants are driven by how many number, how many papers they've published, the number of papers they've published, the number of abstracts that they've presented, how you know thick their resume is, um, without necessarily focusing on the quality of content that they've uh, you know either published or participated in. Um, how do you? I think at at a practical level, how do you make that decision or assumption or what is your thought process when you are screening all these applications? And I'm sure each season you get over seven, 800 applicants. You're, you're correct. Um, so number one, I have to raise my hand and say I was guilty at that time when I was uh, uh, applying for fellowship. Um, you know, I, I, I always wanted to consider myself academic. But when I was applying for fellowship, my goal was to get into fellowship. And the means to achieve that goal um, was to write papers, okay? Um, and so if I'm really honest, uh, you know, to myself and in that manner being honest to your audience and your listenership, I have to say that I, I wasn't aligned to the science of all of the projects that I was involved in because my primary goal was to get into a fellowship. And I understood uh, how the field worked at that time and that I knew on my application the one thing that can be measured and can be looked upon is my number of publications. So I, I totally, I totally get that. And I, I think that um, this space has only become more competitive in the numbers game. Now, if we take a step back, um, I think what's most important and, and what I think causes more division is even the definition of academic. Um, and I don't know whether, um, you have a, a definition of academic. Um, I know I've, in the last you know couple of years, tried to find a definition in, in Western societies of the term academic, and I haven't really come across anything that's that's precise. In fact, um, I think that um, you, you know you, you could find two definitions that are polar opposites. One that academic uh, is any discussion that is of theoretical interest. And on the other end of the spectrum, academic can mean anything that is um, of educational value. Now, when you when you when you apply this to our profession, because we all talk about being academic cardiologists, right? But if you don't have a precise terminology, um, and we use the term loosely, then I think that this leads to um, the development of prejudice, right? And and I think we've all been involved in conversations where um, we've heard sentences like. Um, you know, so-and-so is more academic than so-and-so, or this institution is more academic than inst this institution, or, you know, book chapters or review articles, that's not academic. Um, to be academic, you have to be involved in basic science or lab research. But who defines the threshold of what's academic? And I think without that precision, we lead to prejudice. And without that uh, precision and with prejudice, I feel that is it is next to impossible to make a real coherent, um, accurate, and sufficient 
measurement of any applicant um, that um, is trying to find their way into fellowship. Um, I absolutely believe everyone is well intended. I think everyone who applies, every 800 applicants have a desire, have a strong desire um, to be the best that they can be um, in that fellowship, whether it's cardiology or whether it's GI or, or any other fellowship. And I also believe in my, you know, heart of hearts that they want to be academic. Um, however, I don't think our profession has done the right thing by these youngsters in defining what that term is. Um, and to be honest, the, the only area that I've found a precise definition is in the philosophic literature. Yes. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you, um, when you mentioned that you'll raise your hand and you'll say that you were guilty of this, so was I. And, you know, I've, I've sort of written that in, in the paper that I published in the European Heart Journal. And I concluded that, you know, pedigree is not defined by the institutions we work in or we serve for or have our names attached to. I think pedigree is is a concoction of um, hard work, uh, the ability to be self-critical, um, you know, perseverance, and... Um, you know, dedication and the focus to go deep into any topic, you know, that's what pedigree is. And as long as you have those values, as long as you have those human qualities, um, that's what your real pedigree is. It's not where you belong, you know, or what institution you're affiliated with. And I think, um, I mean, this is, this goes back to, you know, theolo uh, theological literature and also philosophy. Um, that the true definition of an academic, I mean, the Bhagavad Gita um, actually mentions that um, deep study of any topic is akin to meditation, is akin to finding God, is akin to academia. So you could be an academic anywhere on the globe. Um, I think it's just that mindset that you carry as an individual. That's how, that's what I think when I think of academia. I totally, I totally agree, and it's, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that philosophic sort of purport because it's, it's not, it, it is so precisely defined. Because if you, if you, if you accept knowledge, so this is the school of thought that that you've you've sort of brought up. If you accept that knowledge is neither created nor destroyed, and if you take a seeker of knowledge, um, and that seeker is somebody who tries to understand the world in front of them, then that seeker is called the academic. And the academic is defined by one who tries to understand what's in front of them, that deep uh, understanding. And number two, who tries to preserve what is already known through teaching. And so that's that teacher-student relationship and the discovery of new knowledge and then the third component of that is to utilize that in a practical manner to take care of the world that's around them. That means taking care of each other, um, taking care of, um, you know, nature. Um, and, and you can extend that to other sort of aspects of society. But, but I think, as you pointed out yourself, there is a precise definition, but we, we haven't been using it. Um, and instead, we use a more loose definition, an ideal concept that I think leads to more division than, than, than unity. Yes. Yeah, so Nandan, for someone who's listening and who is a prospective applicant to a cardiovascular disease fellowship program, which we both you and I know is very competitive. 
and he or she will be like, okay, this all sounds great. And thank you for having this philosophical discussion and conversation. How do you distill this down to the practical aspect of things and, and the process? And what are you both doing in your capacity to make this a more fair process for the applicants? How are you going to respond to that question? Because, you know, that the, we both know that the practical end of things, unless you have a buffed up resume, you're not going to be considered competitive. How do you reconcile with what you now know, with what the, what the reality is? I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, I, I can't speak for every program. I can only speak to, to what I've done. Um, um, uh, and, and part of that is a perspective of, of being a foreign graduate myself um, and, 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 and understanding that, you know, how, how difficult it is. And by no means is, has my path personally been, you know, extremely difficult in any way. Um, what we do um, is we look at every application um, that, that comes through the door. So if it's 800 applicants, we read every single one of them. Um, there's some things that we just can't escape, right? There are some metrics um, like, you know, board scores. We look at, we look at number of publications. We do. We, we look at that. Um, we, we cannot escape that because that's part of the application. But the other part that I, I look at very closely is the personal statement because, as you said, pedigree is not – um, an institutional affiliation, but I also like to look at distance traveled. Um, I've been sort of flawed. Um, you know, I mean, sometimes I get a lump in my neck, uh, when I, when I read some of these applications of these kids, um, that are supporting, um, their own, you know, their, 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 their siblings or their parents, um, taking a second job, um, all the while getting through medical school, um, and to try to 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 make something of themselves and and driven by their passion um, you know to become a cardiologist now those individuals may not be at what is typically or traditionally considered a top tier or premier um, institution, but they have traveled such distance distance not only geographically uh, necessarily but also mentally, the, the mental obstacles and hurdles. So these are the, the, the non-substantial or the, 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 the subjective or the qualitative um, parameters that I, I look for um, in, in the uh, applications to help me dive deeper to get to know that individual applicant. Now, with all that said, um, at the moment, I, I, I don't think there is an entirely fair process because you know, something of fairness is based on perspective, right? So um, the spelling bee is only fair when my kid wins the competition, right? Otherwise, it's unfair. And I, I think that we'll always see a component of unfairness um, whenever an outcome doesn't go in our direction. The other major limitation is that of the 800 applicants that are out there that are applying, you know, to any particular program, we're unable to interview all of them. And I think that's just a, you know, that's, that's a tragedy, right? Um, I, I wish we could, because I have no doubt that, you know, the vast majority uh, of applicants out there would do just fine in any uh, fellowship program. Uh, but these are the very real limitations that are out there. And, and I think that, that we as leaders, um, you know, program directors, associate program directors, departmental leaders, uh, those in our societies in ACC, HA, uh, European, you know, cardiovascular society, I think we need to take a step back and recalibrate what is important. Um, how can we as physicians be more reflective of the problems and priorities in our society as it pertains to healthcare? 
Um, and that's a big lift. Um, I, and again, with big lifts, I think we have to start very small um, and inch our way forward. Yes. Yeah, so um, I'm going to bring this up uh, as a question because this this question has um, you know resurfaced in my own life. Uh, you know, as I've traversed across institutions, um, and and that question is, you know, as an extension to. Uh, physicians being thinkers and how we want to um, evolve as a as as a cohort of, of physicians who are you know forward thinkers and who have always changed the paradigm in 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 ways things are done. You know, cardiology has always been at the forefront of innovation. Um, so this is sort of a thought innovation question, and, and that this question is how do you um, think about the publish versus perish mentality, which I know I've had, um, and I'm, you know, maybe I still have that residue. Um, and knowing what we now know and how we've now evolved, you know, thanks to theology and philosophy, uh, how do you reconcile with that question? And when you are uh, invited to be an author on a paper, or you know, when you are thinking about a project yourself or, you know, trainees who approach you with projects. Um, what do you now think when you are thinking about projects to do, um, which, you know, obviously would be important, very important for the trainee. I think any project that a trainee gets is so important for them because, you know, they're just starting out as clinical investigators and they have well-defined goals of getting, X, Y, Z number of papers published before they apply. So how do you balance that need or demand? Uh, it's a situational demand for them and they're dependent on you as a trainee and they, they, uh, they have faith in you. They believe they have belief in you. So they're sort of putting themselves on the line when they are entrusting you with their responsibility. How do you balance that with also moving the field forward and doing you know, pushing the frontier science rather than publishing another paper science. I, I, you know, I think I think that's a great question, and I'll I'll sort of explain how I sort of, um, you know, work on project developments um, with with residents and fellows um, that that I work with. Um, but before that, I think I think it's um, what astounds me is the fact that the number of you know, cardiology-related articles that are published every year. I, I think it comes somewhere close to thirty thousand, and and I'd, I'd um, invite you to um, fact-check that. But I, I think that because I recall there was a, a paper that came out maybe in the last year or so, looking at sex uh, disparities in in authorship, um, and I, I think they quoted something close to thirty thousand cardiology-related articles per year. Now, if you take a look at that, that means that if, if we each, if we read one original article or one article per day, we'd be less reading less than one and a half percent or two percent of the annual literature, right? So which means we will never be able to, to keep up with that if every part of that literature is of um, impactful nature. Um, and so, yes, we, we, we are publishing at an exponentially, you know, great, um, uh, sort of, uh, rate. And the question becomes of everything that is being published, how 
much different has our practice been? And if I look at my uh, sort of career as a cardiologist, I think the most impactful area for me that has that has really changed has been the advent of percutaneous uh, structural heart interventions, valve uh, uh, care, um, with, 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 with aortic valve being, being the first on the scene. And I think that has been impactful. But if you look at 30,000 potential articles per year over the, you know, the last 10 years, that's over 300 potential, 300,000 articles in that time. Um, the only thing that has really changed my practice, um, you know, in a most meaningful way is understanding of, uh, you know, a, a new way of managing valve disease. Now, of course, a lot of other therapeutics have come, um, but not that, not at a rate that requires 300,000 articles over a 10 year period. Now, when we come to, um, individuals that are, are looking for guidance want to get involved in in writing and in research um, I think there are different strategies and I can only attest to the strategy that I I participate in um, I tend to work in in, in groups um, so try to be as collaborative as possible and when when a trainee comes to me what I first do is I have a have a meeting uh, with them first and say that whatever project we do I want it to come from from you, um, because that's going to be the project that you're going to be passionate about. Because if I just plug you into ongoing projects, you're going to just be going through the mechanics of it to get that paper published. Um, and I understand for some, that's that's all they're interested in, and and I accept that. Um, but for those who want to carry a project um, passionately forward, what I tell them, especially to those who are novices, who, who don't have much research background, I say, look, Go pick up any cardiology textbook, look at the contents page, pick up a chapter that interests you, read it completely. Once you've read it completely, write down a few questions that come to mind that haven't been answered in that chapter, then go to the guidelines, read them completely, see if those questions have been answered. And if they have, fantastic. See what new questions come up. Then after you've done all of that, let's visit. And then let's see what questions remain. And then based on those questions, we will try to figure out, can we find an answer for it in the literature? So we're not trying to recap or, or, or reinvent the wheel. Um, and if we can't, then I think that presupposes a potential research project. So I am definitely not, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, publishing at a rate of, you know, two or three uh, articles uh, a month or anything like that. I don't consider myself prolific. Um, I I think being academic means staying in touch, trying to understand what's in front of us. I try to be led by the questions that really do disturb me when I'm looking after patients um, in the CCU or if I'm coming across, uh, uh, you know, something unusual on when I'm in the imaging suite. Um, and then I use those, I use those uh, questions as the springboard for potentially writing. And I also see that writing as another way of keeping in touch with our peers um, uh, across the globe. And, and that's what I try to introduce uh, to the trainees that, that, that seek uh, my guidance. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not necessarily, um, you know, a, a prolific multiple paper type of a venture, but it's a slow and steady and see how you go. Um, you know, some, some trainees really enjoy the experience. Others discover 
that it's not for them. Others discover that, you know what, they are so much more detail oriented and they want to be in a lab and they want to try bench research. And I think that that experience, that exploration is fundamentally what I go for. And um, if, if a trainee discovers that this is right for them, fantastic. If they discover that it's not right for them, I think that's equally valuable. Um, but that's sort of how I personally do, do or, or approach um, the, the, the space of publishing or being involved in research projects. I also consider writing book chapters, review articles, opinion pieces. I consider that as academic as well because it's delving into understanding, um, understanding a topic and being able to teach that topic. Um, so I consider those uh, areas of participation or activities as equally academic. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Actually, book chapters and review articles are some of the most um, arduous and laborious projects that I've taken because uh, writing a review article is exhaustive. Um, and I mean, we just, um, we, uh, I mean, um, this is uh, by no means a, a plug or a brag, but just to impress upon the value of um, academic nature, if you're putting a, a review article together, we um, had embarked upon a mission to better define cardiovascular risk in South Asians um, with a group of uh, clinical investigators in India um, back in 2019. And we wanted to, I think we had had discussion with circulation editors and this was part of the uh, Cardiovascular Science India Tour, which was organized uh, through my nonprofit, where we took editors of circulation to India, and we, um, you know, toured um, a private hospital, we toured a public teaching hospital, and we toured uh, a basic science um, uh, institution uh, in New Delhi, and we wanted to foster, uh, you know, just new and innovative research from the region. And then as part of that discussion, we uh, decided that we will write this comprehensive, exhaustive review, almost like a seminar uh, for uh, understanding heightened risk for atherosclerosis in South Asians uh, and, you know, particularly in Indians. And so we, we embarked upon this, uh, this project in 2019 and, um, you know, through iterations and submitting this to circulation and other journals and, and going through the process of revisions. It took us four years to get this paper published. Uh, it has over a hundred references and it's the, one of the most exhaustive pieces that have I, that I have written. Um, I mean, it's, it's out now in Lancet regional health for Southeast Asia. Um, but you know, the, the amount of work it took to get that paper to see the light of the day is more than some of the original research papers that I've written, which have been published in higher impact journals. So, you know, by no means the effort that goes into writing a book chapter or, you know, putting together an exhaustive review, review is less. In fact, it's a lot more in, in my own experience. I, I totally agree. I totally agree with you, but, but it brings to, it brings to uh, light that, 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 that without a precise definition of, of the term academic, um, you can see the prejudices, right? I mean, I, I've, it's, it's not uncommon for me to hear, you know, individuals amongst our professional sphere 
indicate that look, book chapter is no is not academic at all. You know, so so I, I've heard blatant statements like that, um, and I think that's that's the the problem. Um, and and without a precise definition, um, you know, the efforts, the magnitude of efforts, and the the really the pure the essence of wanting to understand, um, you know, w- what's in front of us and, and to make our profession better uh, it leads to more division um, because I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think I learn more, I understand more when I am putting together a book chapter or a review article because you really have to become, uh, you know, savvy with the literature that I, that's out there. Yes, and you're, you sort of um, are almost an expert at the end of that exercise because you've you know, yourself reviewed all the literature that is out there and you've synthesized it. And it, it takes a lot of uh, understanding, deep understanding, um, deep vertical understanding of that particular topic to have have to review all the literature that exists to to synthesize it and then to put it together in a format which eloquently summarizes everything that's out there until now and then identify gaps. I think that takes a tremendous amount of of exploration. It takes a tremendous amount of understanding. And then it takes a tremendous amount of effort to, to, to summarize it. I think putting a review article or a book chapter together is by far the most academic activity, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, you know, after having gone through that exercise, you know, with, with this particular paper, you know, I, in terms of effort and in terms of the quality of effort and the purity of effort, I don't think I've done that kind of effort in any other paper, even though this is published in one of the sister journals for Lancet. So the impact factor, if that's how you measure the the success in academia, you know, yes, it's not not that high of an impact factor. But to me, you know, who has also published in the more popular journals with very high impact factors. This particular paper is very dear to me because I know the amount of effort it took to get this out there. Um, so I, I, I agree with you. It's, um, it's very ambiguous how we very superficially measure, um, you know, what people have done, uh, you know, in their careers by just looking at you know, where they've published this or what's their edge index or what's, or what, what is the impact factor of the journal where they've published this? I think these are all very superficial metrics, you know, impact is a lot more and you really have to read each paper to understand the, the quality and the effort that has gone into a particular writing, you know, in my opinion. Um, so, um, Nandana, you know, I think, um, you know, as we are as we are approaching the the close of this uh, this particular episode, uh, and there's more to come because you know we have this mini series coming up for for the audience who are listening. Um, how do you um, want to see this particular aspect within cardiology and medicine at large change? And what are some of the measures that you have taken as an individual who belongs to? Um, uh, you know, a very powerful institution within the realm of things all within, you know, the realm of things cardiology. I mean, you belong to an institution which is um, revered and and looked upon. Um, And you are at a position where you can usher in change, not only through things you do on a day-to-day basis, but also you are at a position where you can foster 
um, new concepts into avenues where people will read those, um, you know, thoughts that you put out because they're coming from someone at the Mayo Clinic. So I think, um, how do you envision changing that? Uh, or what do you do? Um, or what have you thought about doing uh, to change that? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a that's a really um, it's a it's a powerful question um, because because what we've been discussing a lot of it is based on perspective, right? Um, and so, whatever perspective I have, I think the wise thing to say is that that perspective is is mine, and I have to accept and respect. Um, uh, in, that that there are going to be a lot of other perspectives that that may be counter to mine and 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 uh, I, I can wholeheartedly confirm that uh, some of my perspectives even within the institution that I work with are not going to be universally accepted as as the ideal so that being said um, I, I think that one of the largest lessons that I have ever um, learned through my experiences as a physician was actually not um, w- during my sort of workday at Mayo Clinic, but it's during um, some of the volunteer activities um, at the Salvation Army Clinic. And what I learned there is that um, as a physician, I may have a certain set of priorities and and it might be that I get my patient on all five or six or whatever number of guideline or goal-directed medical therapies for a particular diagnosis. Now, when I use that set of uh, priorities um, to drive my decision-making, then basically what I'm doing is that I am I am prioritizing um, my end goals over the goals of the patient. And, and, and that that realization came to me extremely expeditiously when I was looking after, you know, patients at this volunteer clinic whose priorities were, were absolutely um, uh, unaligned with mine. Um, and so, for example, um, a patient may have uh, two or three jobs um, to make ends meet. And so with a finite number of dollars in their pocket, they have to, prioritize paying the rent um, for an apartment, um, paying for food on the table, um, paying for tuition for their children. Um, So those are real priorities. And those priorities may take um, a a front step um, to the priorities of being on certain medications for a diagnosis. So what I've learned is that um, yes, we we are great at making diagnoses. We are great at prescribing medicines. We are not great at understanding our patients and our patients' priorities. Now, that's at the individual physician-patient interaction. At the societal level, I think that um, there is a risk um, of us being siloed, um, especially at these you know big meetings. Um, and I know that, and I congratulate the efforts made by our societal leaders uh, at ACCAHA on the U.S. fronts to try to understand the societal needs better. Um, but I think we need to calibrate or recalibrate those priorities um, 
uh, when we start talking about um, guidelines, when we start talking about um, our sort of measurements of therapeutic success when we're dealing with our patients, because without taking into account these other interacting factors, um, you know, we're not really reaching um, our patients in the meaningful way that we all want to reach our patients. Um, and again, this is, this is my, my opinion. Now, how do we affect those type of changes? I, I think it's hard. I, I don't have a solution. I, I don't have um, a, a robust uh, hierarchy of an approach. Um, I can only attest to, to my um, approach, and that's, that's on a day-by-day basis. When I'm in the CICU, I, I try to emphasize the importance of understanding the social history of the patients, trying to work with them within their capacity. Um, only last week when I was in the ICU, we had a patient who could not, who could not tolerate uh, guideline-directed medical therapies. And I, you know, wrote in my notes, um, we will uh, aim for um, or aspire towards monotherapy with diuretics, um, with the goal being to um, alleviate congestion and to make the patient feel better. And, and surprisingly, most of my team were aghast. They're saying, so, so we're not going to try to get Entresto back on, or we're not going to try um, an ACE inhibitor or spironolactone. And I said, look, we can try if the goal is to make ourselves feel better um, by having the patient be on these medications. But this particular patient was in the CCU. We got the patient out of the CCU onto the ward service. Attempt was made to start like minuscule doses of these uh, guideline-directed therapies, and the patient has ended up back with us. So we have to recalibrate why are we doing what we're doing? Because the goal for the patient is to get out of the hospital, to be with his family, and to do what he can um, you know, in terms of participating in his life, um, whereas our goal may be askew to that. And, and I think that we need to recalibrate this at the bedside first. And then from that ripple, hopefully this starts creating a wave and that wave may hopefully affect change. But this change cannot happen unless we have a discussion, unless we have a conversation, unless we make time to do that. And as you know, as you well, very well know, we're all pressed for time, right? Um, we have noon meetings. We see extra patients at the end of the day. We um, are all stretched thin. We all wear different hats. Um, and, and, and there's not enough time in the day um, to, to meet each of those expectations um, meaningfully. So I struggle with this. I, I really do, Ankur. I, I don't have a great solution apart from, you know, trying on a day-by-day basis, on a patient-by-patient basis, and I will be honest with you, I, I've, I have missed many opportunities uh, in, in having these conversations. I, I, I foresee I will continue to miss opportunities, um, but I can do my best, um, you know, to, to make the best of those opportunities when they arise. And I hope that my trainees um, do the same um, and, and grow from that experience. Yes, I think it, it's um, it's the perfect way to end this episode, Nandan. Um, I think uh, we will pick um, from here in the third episode um, of this mini series um, contemplative uh, concepts and and thank you for sharing these thoughts so openly and and you know being vulnerable and I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think we we have to 
start measuring our success in terms of how we made our patients feel. And I think that's where the implementation, uh, the, the, the importance of implementation science comes in. I, and I know that societies like the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association are trying to get more funding in for implementation science, which I think is going to be the next frontier of clinical investigation. Because we can have all the drugs uh, which have all these amazing outcomes, but if our patients are not taking them, you know, either financially or just the fact that they can't tolerate it, it's a, a lot of effort, a tremendous amount of effort, millions of dollars, if not billions, you know, goes into goes into waste. So, you know, thanks again uh, for joining me this uh, Saturday morning uh, to do this. And, uh, you know, we'll be back again with, uh, with the third episode of the miniseries. And thank you to everyone who's listening. If you haven't had a chance to um, rate us and review us, uh, please do so, um, you know, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, also on uh, review tabs for Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify, among other podcast platforms. We take your feedback very seriously. And, uh, you know, it helps us refine uh, Parallax and also get guests on board um, from whom you want to, uh, you know, learn from. Um, so, with that, uh, thank you, everyone, and we'll see you back um, next Monday. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.